0: Well, good morning. I'm Ricky and I am the youth director as well as one of the elders here at Rockwell Prez. and it's my privilege to get to share with you this morning from the Word of God. Well, these are strange times that we're living in, aren't they? I am currently sitting in an empty sanctuary pre-recording this week's message for y'all and I'm not going to lie, it is a little bit strange. But you know, liking to look for silver linings, I've been thinking to myself and trying to come up with ways that we could make this experience better and better. And so I thought to myself, you know what would be really cool is if we had a teleprompter. You're probably saying, Ricky, what are you talking about? Why would a teleprompter make any difference whatsoever? But hear me out, go with me on this. So a teleprompter would be a screen that would sit right on top of the camera and allow whoever's preaching to look at their notes, to read any quotes, to read from scripture passages, and the entire time, we'd be able to keep looking and engaging with you right into the camera. So I think it would be pretty cool, enhance the experience. So I brought it up to Pastor Zach and his quick and emphatic response was, no. So I'll tell you what, I'm gonna try my best, but no promises here. And if I offhandedly or accidentally refer to Zach throughout this message at any point as dream killer, I apologize. But all joking aside, these really are strange times that we're living in. And this pandemic will likely define us, right? Uh, and a whole generation of our children. When I was younger, the Berlin Wall fell and the Cold War ended. I remember watching the news with my parents. And the world was a different place after that. A few years later, when I was in college, 9-11 occurred. And I remember getting a call in my dorm room that morning and being told to go turn on the news. The world was never the same after that. And now we have the coronavirus pandemic. And the world is changing. Worldwide, the virus has sickened Over 600,000 people that we know of so far, and close to 28,000 people have been reported dead. The U.S. this week became the worldwide leader in reported cases. And here in Texas, like most of the country, we have been asked to self-isolate, to social distance, to quarantine, and it's all taking its toll. Plus, in the midst of this humanitarian crisis, we're also facing a financial crisis. This last two weeks, we've seen wild swings in the stock market. We've seen both its best and worst weeks since the Great Depression. Last week, 3.2 million people filed for unemployment. And a few days ago, the government approved a $2.2 trillion stimulus plan. And let's be honest. It's definitely affecting each one of us in different ways. I'm assuming by this point, most of us know someone or at least know someone who knows someone who's contracted the virus. And then on top of everything, we're stuck at home. Many of us are working from home and we're schooling from home for the first time now. It's a little bit crazy and we're all trying to catch up and learn and adjust to this new norm. Uh, I've been watching some Um, people posting, and it's fun to kind of see uh, how some people are dealing with this new reality. One mom posted, Been homeschooling a six-year-old and an eight-year-old for one hour and eleven minutes. Teachers deserve to make a billion dollars a year. No, a week. Another post that made me laugh, someone said, "So." This is finally how we are going to bring prayer and spankings back to our schools. Others of us though are first responders or our work has been deemed essential and we are still in the hospitals or out in the community interacting, serving, caring for others and really putting ourselves at risk and our families at greater risk. I think though that the hardest part about it all is just the uncertainty. We aren't quite sure when this will end, or what's next, and as that is the case, stress and anxiety continues to mount. One college student who's at home for the foreseeable future put it this way. They said, I feel like there's nothing left to look forward to. An article that was talking about these college students mentioned that, you know, the, way, the truth of the matter is, is they've now been wrenched from their routines, from their friends, and they've been made to return to parents who can't say what's coming and who have no ability to comfort them as everything's been muted and undermined by the virus. And this is leaving these college students, as well as the rest of us, I might add, feeling lost and empty And it's natural to feel that way i think it's natural for each of us to look at this and ask ourselves when my life's so crazy do i think that god took his hand off the wheel where is he when the world seems so out of control that not even any institution or authority can get a handle on it do we really still serve a god who is above it all is he really in control well, if he is, can he, how can he be good? I'm looking around, and it doesn't feel or seem very good, right? Is he truly able to work all things together for good, even death and sickness, even this? Well, I will say this. What an amazing thing that we are going through the book of Mark in a series entitled, Who is Jesus? Because here we see that Mark reaches through the pages of history, and he seems almost to be speaking directly to us in the midst of our anxiety and our uncertainty. We've reached Mark chapter 10 today, and it couldn't be more relevant. But just to catch you up and remind you about the first eight chapters of the book, Jesus spent nearly three years ministering in Galilee. And throughout this time, he's been preaching and doing things that have caused everyone to ask, who is this guy? Who does this kind, these kinds of things? And it ultimately culminates in chapter 8, where Peter declares, You are the Christ. Jesus affirms it as being true, but he tells them at the same time to keep it to themselves, to be quiet, because he recognizes that they don't understand yet who the Christ is. And here we begin to learn that he isn't the type of Messiah that we're expecting. Then, in chapters 9 and 10, we are now on a journey to Jerusalem with Jesus and his disciples, and it's here that Jesus reaffirms what he's already revealed in chapter 8. Not only is the Son of Man the Messiah King that's been prophesied to us in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, but he's also the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. And this is new. This wasn't what anyone expected. So here in three perfect cycles, in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus reveals to the disciples, and Mark tells us that he, the Christ, must suffer and die. And three times the disciples respond by saying something very foolish, very stupid, showing that they really don't get it, they don't understand what Christ's priorities are. But this is always followed up by Jesus teaching them about the true nature of discipleship, humility, and service. He's gracious to them. He helps them understand, um, even in the midst of their lack of understanding and their lack of insight. And so that's where we are. All of this is leading up to chapters 11 through 16, where Mark's going to slow the story way down and spend six chapters on Jesus' final week, all leading up to the cross. But here in chapter 10, in our passage today, we are now with Jesus and his disciples right before they arrive in Jerusalem. This is the last cycle of him predicting his death and the disciples responding. And here, Jesus answers our questions. Where's God? It's here that he tells us why he came. It's here that he tells us how suffering serves God's greater purposes and how he tells us how that should change us from the inside out again here in chapter 10 we learn why jesus came we learn how suffering can actually serve god's greater purposes and how knowing this knowledge of this should change us and affect us from the inside out so wherever you are sit back and go on this journey with us down the road to jerusalem in chapter 10 verse 32 it says this and they were on the road going up to jerusalem And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them. So here we are with Jesus on the road. He is walking ahead, because that's the norm as the rabbi or the teacher. Um, And it tells us that the crowds are amazed, right? They're amazed by who he is, all that he's doing, the things that he's saying. But those that are following him, we're told, are beginning to be afraid. The disciples know what Jesus has been telling them. He's been telling them this, the opposition we've been facing from the Pharisees and the scribes and everyone else is only going to intensify as we approach Jerusalem. And not only is it going to intensify, it's going to turn into death. The disciples know this is a real thing because they already saw it happen to John the Baptist. They know he's not joking. This is a real threat. And he's, telling them that, um, and he's telling them that that's where we're headed. They're walking down that road with him. He pulls them aside and he says this, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So here for the third time in three chapters, Jesus is predicting that he will be condemned, delivered, mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. Then after three days, he will rise. He's put this in our heads three times um, that he will he has put this in our head three times that God is ordaining this. Each time, he gets even more specific in the details about how it's going to unfold. So then when we finally get to Jerusalem, and it all looks insane, we realize that as crazy as all this is, it's all according to plan. But you know what? Jesus isn't just predicting the future here. Although he does and he can predict the future he's also quoting scripture in fact he's quoting from psalm 22 and isaiah 50 where it tells us that the messiah will be insulted he'll be despised he'll be spit on and that he'll suffer in fact this isn't just something that god is allowing it's according to plan this is why he's come It's part of the equation that the disciples don't get yet. And it's made even clearer in verse 45 where he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is it! Why did he come? Jesus came not to be served, but to die, to give his life. It sets him apart from any other teacher or founder of any other major religion, Their purpose was to live and to be an example, whereas his purpose was to die and to be a sacrifice. But this is all according to God's plan. And for disciples, that plan is a mystery. This is something that they never would have expected or imagined. And yet, he is telling them so that when the craziness comes, they will know that their God is in control. And he's doing something that's much bigger than they have ever thought or could possibly even understand this is good encouragement for us isn't it even when life's crazy even when we're out of control or things don't go according to our plans his purpose still stands we can look at this and take comfort in the fact that our faith centers around a reality that he has already proven this has already been proven to be true at the cross right but the disciples are asking what is that he is the, the disciples are asking what it is that he is doing how will the suffering and death of their teacher the chosen one serve god's greater purpose that doesn't make sense to them it doesn't fit their paradigm here he uses the phrase he uses the phrase give his life for a ransom for many And that sums up the reason why he's going to suffer and die in fact most scholars identify this little phrase not only as the climax of our story in mark chapter 10 but they state that this is the actual key idea for the entire book of mark the entire book of mark his whole gospel it summarizes the ministry of jesus as the suffering servant of the lord the one predicted in isaiah 53 and this is mark's particular emphasis in the book The word ransom, it refers to the payment of a price in order to purchase the freedom of a slave. The idea of Jesus as the ransom is that he paid the price with his own life by standing in our place as a substitute. That he endured judgment that was deserved for our sin. Jesus came to pay the price for me and for you. He ransomed, ransomed us from our slavery to a cosmic evil. And this cosmic evil required a cosmic payment. And it was one that we could never possibly pay. But he procured our freedom. He suffered on our behalf as our, as our substitutionary sacrifice. And he went through with an enormous amount of, amount of suffering and did it with humility because he loves us. And isn't that the only reason that any of us ever chooses to suffer? Because we deem something to be valuable enough to sacrifice for? Think about your family. Parenting, for instance, is full of sacrifice, isn't it? The average cost for a parent to raise one child today is $233,000, just under a quarter million of dollars over the lifespan of raising your child. Not only is it financially expensive, think about the time cost that it takes, the investment that we spend teaching them, disciplining them, reading them, mentoring them, pouring into them, teaching them the faith. 18 to 20 years of your time that could be spent doing other things, that could be spent doing something else. And yet, it's worth it to us because because true love sacrifices and we love our kids and they're worth it to us. So here we're reminded um, that God constantly uses suffering and sacrifice, even suffering that's caused by our sin or that's the result of the fallen world. He's able to take it and he's able to make redemption out of it. Jesus is teaching us a theology where as crazy as life looks, we can know, we can know That God is still in control and that nothing in life is bigger than God's plan. And we can take comfort in this because He's already proven it to be true. He may have created the world in an instant, but we know that He had to recreate the world at the cross. So, how should this change us? If we know that He came, why He came, to suffer and die, and we know how god can use sacrifice and suffering to fulfill his greater purpose and plan how does that change us what does that mean for our lives well let's look back at our passage once more this is the disciples just heard jesus predict his death and what was their response they don't get it do they right or they chose not to get it at least the magnitude of what the cross actually means is just hard for them to grasp They have their own agendas. Pride and ego are often blinding, right? The cross, though, the cross brings humility. Do we have that humility? Or are we being blinded as well? One example of this being blinded is worry, right? That's a prime example. Now, worry is natural, especially when it comes to worrying about the people that we love, right? But when we constantly worry subconsciously what we are saying is i know how my life has to go i know how the world needs to be and god is not getting it right so james and john what do they do they come up to him and they say teacher we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you first of all I want you to recognize that's a pretty incredible statement to go up to the Christ and say, right? Jesus, do whatever we want, exactly as we want it. It's funny to read, but maybe it actually isn't that far from the prayers that you and I really pray, right? Um, God, not my will, but your will. But please, please do this, right? Um, So how does Jesus respond? Does he get angry? No. No. He responds again with patience and grace, and he says to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they say to him, Grant to us that we might sit at your right hand and one at your left when you come into your glory. Well, that's a pretty big request, right? They're essentially asking to be his vice president and prime minister. Um, They want to be in positions of power when Christ comes into his glory. Now what's ironic about this is that the moment of Jesus' greatest glory that we now know is actually at the cross, right? Um, His glory is fully manifested and his mission is fulfilled as he is raised up on the cross to die for our sins. Uh, And guess what? When he's on the cross there is someone on his right and on his left But they're being crucified. And so Jesus responds to them and tells them, uh, You do not know what you're asking, right? Clearly, the disciples don't comprehend what's going on because they continue to focus increasingly on what? On a physical kingdom and their roles in it, right? They want to rule. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus continues to teach them these lessons of discipleship that they truly need, right? He asks, are you able to drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Here what he's actually asking them is whether they can really take on the wrath of God because that's the cup that he's about to drink from, right? That's the baptism that he's about to be immersed in. Those who share in Jesus' honor and his kingdom must also share in his sufferings in this age. Well, John and James don't get that here. We know that they will get it later on, right? Christ tells them, you will drink from this cup. And James is the first uh, disciple who's martyred um, for the faith. And John may very well be the last one who was martyred. Uh, If he was not martyred, he surely suffered. He was imprisoned. He, according to tradition, had hot tar poured on him. And so both of them drank from that cup, right? But when the other disciples hear about this, they're pretty upset. So Jesus gathers them and says, Well, you know this. Those who are considered rulers in this world, rulers of the Gentiles, what do they do? They lord it over the people that they rule. And there and the great ones exercise. Authority, right? They flex their muscles and make it known that they are in charge. But it shown't it shall not be that way among you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be this must be a servant. And whoever would like to be first among you must be a slave of all. For every for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many Christ sets the example he tells us that the cross not only changed our destiny but it should change our behavior it should change our identity right the cross should change us the cross should make us serve I feel fortunate enough to be a part of a church that gets that and that knows that and already does it in so many ways so well this week um, I put out a little SOS. I put a video on Realm because CRI has some missionaries coming back from Haiti. Um, They're U.S. citizens but they're Haitian-born and they are the leaders of our projects down in southern Haiti. They're training rural pastors and they're caring for children who don't have education through their tutoring program. They're building homes for those who are vulnerable and they are providing clean water. And yet, in the midst of everything else going on haiti has now uh, haiti has now also been the recipient of the coronavirus and like jean told me it really has the potential to destroy haiti in a real big way and what ends up happening during times of crisis in haiti is everything shuts down there's road blockades there's riots there's not access to even basic staples and necessities and so we felt like we really needed to get the josephs out of there before everything shut down because we felt like they could more effectively provide and represent and advocate and minister to their people if they weren't Basically shut down in their house with no communication to the rest of the world and no supplies. So they went around and they provided uh, food before they left for the children and their families of the tutoring program. They met with their staff, and then they headed home. But we didn't even think they were going to make it because uh, the Haitian government was saying that they were already going to close down the airport, and so we booked their tickets. Uh, and we didn't even know, though, if the roads would be blocked, if they could even make it to the airport. Uh, but Monday we found out that their flight was still scheduled and they were going to make a run for it, and they were going to try it. And so I put out the SOS, and I uh, asked if anyone had a place for them to stay, um, and the Piercys, Duane and Jennifer, quickly responded that they had a place and that they were willing to open up their apartment above their garage for our missionaries to stay. And just this outpouring of generous hospitality uh, that they kind of started, they were the tip of the spear, just continued uh, like a ripple effect through the rest of the church. We had people showing up with furnitures, with a television for them, with kitchen sets. We had people sign up for meals for them as soon as they got back, understanding that the transition was gonna be hard and that emotionally and physically they're just worn out. And so what an amazing thing to see that even in the midst of the uncertainty, um, people were serving. And I love that because that's exactly what Christ has called us to do. He's called us to recognize that suffering is a part of this world. Um, and yet he tells us that he has overcome the world, and we can take comfort in that, right? And he calls us in the midst of that to follow his example, to take up our crosses. Even when we don't know what the outcome will be, we know that we serve the God who is over the outcome, right? And who can work all things together for good. And so we've been called to serve our neighbors and to do it even if they believe differently than us, right? Uh, we've been called to love our community sacrificially, Jesus is the paradigm. He died for our sins. He prayed for his enemies, even while he was on the cross. At the very center of our worldview is a man dying for his enemies and showing us the way to influence is through service and not through power. John the Apostle got this later on in life, right? In 1 John, his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 16, he tells us this, but we but by this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And that's, that's true. That's how we are called to be transformed and changed from the inside out. Last week, Zach told the story of the man who had that vision, where Christ showed him two rooms, right? Where people were trying to eat from spoons with way too long of handles, Uh, And in one room, as people tried to feed themselves, everything kept just falling out off the spoon. And Jesus turned to the man and said, this is what hell is like. And then he showed him a second room. And in the other room, everyone was using their spoon with their long handle as well, but instead of trying to feed themselves, they were feeding one another, right? And this was heaven. Right now, we're all living out our own little version of this vision in our own self-quarantine in our home right and it really has the potential to be a little bit of living hell or a little bit of heaven on earth and to be honest most days it's a bit of a mix but my encouragement today is Christ came to sacrifice his life for us and to die that we that we might be redeemed and that we might know God's love and through his sacrifice and suffering and service God's plan was affirmed. God's plan was established. In the midst of suffering, God used it to bring about his purposes. And then ultimately, Christ's challenge to each one of us is that we would follow his example, knowing that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up. We too are called to do the same. If we want to be first, we've got to be last. If we want to a position of power we've got to be willing to endure the pain with him we've got to be willing to take up our cross and follow him let me close us now um, as we come to the end of our passage with a word of prayer thank you lord that you are in control and that you suffered and died on our behalf and you gave us the example um, of how to sacrifice and how to love even in the midst of sorrow in the midst of suffering in the midst of pain and that you through the cross have showed us that God is in control and he does work all things together for good and nothing can thwart his purposes and although we might not understand that our king is also the suffering servant help us to understand more and more every day and help us to follow in Christ's uh, footsteps help us to follow Christ's example and as we do so May we see your plan come to fruition here in our lives and your kingdom be established in our community and on this earth. Father, we trust you. We know you're in control and we ask that you would work all things together for good. In Jesus' name, amen.